Embedded in the stories of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the Sea of Galilee are several important lessons for our life. Among them, how to deal with loss, why looking to Jesus in all things is a good idea, and how to manifest miracles in our own lives. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Talk Tree. I'm so grateful to have you with me for Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is number 13, Be Not Afraid. We're covering Matthew 14 through 15, Mark 6 through 7, and John 5 through 6. And because there's so much material in all of these chapters, I'm going to take a little bit of a sequenced or chronological approach. But uh, I'll I'll try to focus on the things that are covered more, um, that are covered repeatedly in these passages, and also the things that have more personal meaning to me, but I'll try not to miss um, anything that I consider important. So uh, first of all, and and so I have a confession to make. I kind of am really looking forward to getting to John chapter 6, which is the the bread of life discourse. It's one of the most significant lessons in all of scripture. So I'm going to, I hope it doesn't feel like I'm trying to get Mark and Matthew out of the way, but I feel a little bit like that today. So Mark, uh, to begin in Mark chapter 6, Mark 6 and Matthew 14 are almost, recount almost the same events, with the exception at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. Uh, this is one of those chapters, and the way that the, the writers of the Come, Follow Me manual have organized this is rather than separate each passage by verse, they have just included whole chapters. And I think that was the right choice but what happens then is that there's a lot of overlap. So there are some events that are included in more than one lesson. And I don't know if we're meant to ignore those or study them twice. So I, I, I'm kind of using it as an opportunity to cover things that I might have forgotten the first time that this event uh, was recounted in one of the scriptures that, that we studied. So that's the example here. This is the sending forth of the twelve, and one of the one of the charges that Jesus gave to the twelve was uh, to wipe the dust off of your feet whenever you're rejected somewhere. And I didn't talk anything, I didn't say anything about that in that week's podcast. But then in my Sunday school class, um, the question came up: What does that mean? And um, the the my the thought that came into my head at the time was. That was the lesson on uh, that also included Luke chapter seven. This this dinner in the home of Simon the Pharisee, when Jesus has his feet washed with the tears of a of a woman who is is contrite for her sins, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus says to Simon, "You know, you didn't you didn't wash my feet, which is the duty of any host to a guest." And so my thought at the time was. The, it's a testimony to God that they, the people that you've tried to teach have not received you with even the minimum courtesy that is required of host to guest in, in that culture at that time, which is to wash your feet. So you still have the dust on your feet. The fact that you have to shake it off uh, is a symbol to God, is a testimony to God that they haven't received you even in that minimal amount. This, this charge is repeated four or five times in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
And when, when Joseph Smith writes it down, he includes a few times the additional idea that you should go on your way rejoicing. And uh, without making too much of this, this commandment to wipe the dust off of your feet, I would say, um, the more I think about it, the more I believe that it, it has to do not with, because what Jesus says is, it'll be better for the day in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will for them. And the idea that a lot of people carry away is, I'm going to condemn these people by wiping the dust off of my feet. And as a missionary, that idea was prevalent. Like, oh, if, and, and you'd see missionaries flippantly sometimes, uh, they'd pick up their feet when they were rejected and wipe the top of their shoe against the back of, their, of one leg and then do it with the other leg. And sort of as a joke, like, oh, these people rejected us. We're wiping the dust from our feet. And um, I think the flippancy is totally inappropriate because the what the missionary is doing and what people are doing are, is saying, I, I'm hurt because I was rejected, and therefore uh, I want these people to suffer for what they've done to me. And that is not a Christian. That is not, if you actually think that's the way that God works, then... Uh, you and I don't worship the same God. Although um, I don't remember doing this myself, but I remember not not seeing it the same way when I witnessed it in the mission field. What I think now is that um, similar to Second Nephi chapter nine verse thirty four, when Jacob shakes his garments and he says, "This is a testimony to you that I that my garments are free of your blood." In other words, your sins aren't coming on me. I think that's the idea that Jesus was trying to get across. You're the you're the shepherds, and if you don't this, you shaking the dust off of your feet is a testimony to God. Not that they've rejected you, the people, but that you have done all you can, and that you can go on your way rejoicing, knowing that you have discharged your duty towards the people you've talked to, that you've given it your all, and you have truly testified, and that if they have sins after that, that they will be on their own heads. Now. Um, that is a cause to rejoice because you've truly done everything you can. And it may be that, and you should carry this hope in your heart that people that hear you uh, give them any sort of good news, well, those words will eventually sink in. I know in my own life, whenever I'm proved wrong, and it does happen, <laughs> those who know me <laughs> uh, might get some pleasure out of hearing that, but it does happen. Uh, I usually don't admit it right away. I try to be better at that. But uh, I try to be humble lately, but there are times when it takes some time for words to sink in and where I recognize that I need to change. And so this is the case with anyone hearing the gospel. So we should never rejoice that someone hasn't heard the gospel, but rather that we've discharged our duty. Those were some of my thoughts at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. And then we get into the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And this story begins in different ways. Uh, in different places, in different Gospels. Mark and Matthew include the death of John the Baptist and then a little flashback about Herod. And um, in, in this case, Herod refers to Herod Antipas um, and that the fact that he killed John the Baptist and John doesn't. So we'll get into a little bit about what they all include and why. And the first thing to take note of is that Jesus has been active in the Galilee region, and the Tetrarch, or the one of the heirs, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom, rather than being united under a single ruler, was divided up. 
And uh, it's interest, interesting to note that many of his children and uh, grandchildren ended up being named Herod after him. Kind of reminded me of George Foreman. Uh, if you know of him, he named his children George. Uh, so Herod Antipas was the tetrarch over the Galilee region, and he had imprisoned John the Baptist because he stole the wife of one of his brothers, who was Herod Philip or Herod II. And the his wife's name was Herodias. She was also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. So she was also named after Herod. So Herod Philip or Philip had, had married his own niece, and then uh, one of his brothers stole his wife and married her. And then at his birthday party, uh, at Herod uh, Antipas's birthday party, he, you know, here he is with this, um, the, the woman that he is in a, uh, an incestuous and illicit union with, and John the Baptist has decried him for this behavior. He said, you're committing adultery, which he was. And, he, and so he had imprisoned John the Baptist, but he was afraid to kill him, both because the people loved John the Baptist and because he himself was torn in one of the, in one of the accounts in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 20. It says that he did many things. This is a perfect example of where you can go to BibleHub.com and look up this verse and find out what it really means by that. And what it means is he felt many things. He was pulled in different directions. So it, he was perplexed. He was torn. And uh, so Herod did not want to kill John the Baptist. He just had him in prison, so he couldn't keep talking bad about him, but that's where he wanted to leave it. And he felt very comfortable with that. And then at his birthday party, uh, his new wife's daughter danced before him and pleased him, quote-unquote, which... Uh, so you, you should get a little bit sick at the, at the thought of this because not only was this girl his niece, you know, he was his, uh, his brother's daughter and it, he was a step, she, or I'm sorry, she was his brother's daughter and she was also his stepdaughter, but she was also his own niece and his own grandniece. So that this, this, and the reason I bring all of these terrible relationships up is to show you one of the conflicts that's come in, going to come into play later on in the lesson. Uh, it's the idea of, of how earthly governments work, who rises to the top. So these are the people, this is the kind of family that was a dynasty in, the, in Judea, Sumeria, Galilee, Perea, the, these areas surrounding Jerusalem where the Israelites lived at the time of Jesus. This was the ruling family. These are who the Romans left in charge because they were the people willing to be puppet regimes and oppress their own people for power. And the sort of the commentary, or I guess at least the opinion, what seems to be the opinion of Jesus, is that these are the kind of people that rise to the top. And it's not just the opinion of Jesus, as we'll see. So Herod Antipas believes, when he hears all these miracles that Jesus is doing, he believes that this is John the Baptist. And that's because at his birthday party, this, uh, this niece of his dances for him, excites him or pleases him. And so he says, anything that you uh, want, up to the half of my kingdom, I'll give you. And she, having consulted with her mother, says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And he, because he's so embarrassed, he's, pu he's promised it publicly, Herod has to comply. So we can see that Herod Antipas is a lot like his father. He's a terrible murderer. Uh, perhaps not as willfully so. He had a little bit of fear in him. But 
in some ways, that's even worse. He knew something was wrong, and he cared about it, and he was still willing to go against what little principles he had because of how it looked. And that's a sin that perhaps Herod the Great didn't commit. He seemed to be totally uh, dedicated in his sin by killing you know, the babies at the time of Jesus. And so he thought, oh, wow, the person performing all these miracles is probably John the Baptist returned to life to, to come get me. Right? He was scared of the reputation of Jesus. And we see how this comes into play later. Uh, during the trial of Jesus, one account has Jesus, Luke's account has Jesus being sent to Herod Antipas, who happened to be visiting in Jerusalem at that time. And well, we'll talk about that when that comes up. So that's, that's who Herod is. And the reason that that story, that that account is significant it, we'll talk about a couple of reasons. One I've already mentioned, it, it shows you what kind of people rise to the top. The other is that it gives you an insight into what was going on in Jesus's mind. Now, the, the, the idea that uh, a writer of a story would tell us, this is sort of a modern invention. For It became centuries later that somebody would say, now Jesus felt you know, terrible and he was seeing this, it's known as point of view. And the Bible is written very much in what's known today as a, as a cinematic point of view, where you, you know only what you can see from outside. And so if we want to know how Jesus felt, we have to infer that from the surrounding context. So one of the, one of the things that is most obvious about the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist is that they loved each other. And there was the highest degree of respect. They never talked about each other with anything other than glowing praise. Of course, John towards Jesus, but Jesus towards John. He said, there's nobody greater that was born of woman. And they were close. We also know they were close cousins and their mothers were close. Personally, I think this, this makes it likely that Jesus and John were friends growing up, that they would have seen each other often. And that Jesus would have been able to confide in John in a way that he would not have been able to do with anyone else. That John would have been John the Baptist would have been able to see the mission of Jesus and have some perspective on it and know that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus didn't have to I don't want to say that Jesus would ever conceal who he was or feel like he had to hide it or be ashamed of it, but he could be free with John in a way that he couldn't with anyone else. And so, these, this is my interpretation, this is my guess, but I believe that Jesus and John were what you would call best friends. And for someone who was so unique the way Jesus was, his best friend was precious to him. So these are all, these are all just ideas. These are, these are guesses that we, that we can make as to what was going on in Jesus' mind. But what we do know is that when Jesus found out about the, the death of John the Baptist, the next thing he tries to do is go off and be by himself. And uh, this idea, that, the idea that Jesus is in mourning, uh, I get from a book that I'll, I'll explain where I, where I learned about this book in a minute, but uh, it's called 12 Conditions of a Miracle, The Miracle Worker's Handbook by Todd Michael. And uh, it, th- this book calls the feeding of the 5,000, this, this 14th chapter of Matthew, where Jesus divides the bread and um, performs this miracle. He calls it the Alpha Passage. And that's because the, the premise of this book is that buried in this account in Matthew, in the Greek text of the account, is a manual 
for how to bring miracles into our lives. Now, this this is not written from an LDS perspective, and it's not even technically written from a, a God-worshiping perspective. You know, the a lot of people who, when they write books like this, they try to make it appeal from an energy perspective, saying, you know, that your higher power or things like that. So it's not like you have to believe in God to read this book. Nevertheless, one of the benefits of of studying the scriptures and studying the words of the prophets and making a, a point of listening to general conference and deepening your understanding of the gospel is that you can do what Joseph Smith suggested in the Doctrine and Covenants, which was learn out of the best books, words of wisdom. So when you, when you know what you believe, then you can also read works by people who may not believe the same, and you don't have to feel threatened by it. You can say, here's, here's something that runs very parallel to my own beliefs and departs perhaps in a few different points, but I find a lot of value there. So anyway, I recommend this book because, and here's the reason, it is a great primer for someone who wants to learn how to do what we do often on the podcast, which is take an original language, translate passage by passage, and learn from the different meanings of each word what the passage as a whole might also be saying. And so what this, uh, what the author does is he takes 12 different parts of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, and he gives alternate translations for almost each word in each of those parts of the tale. And then he explains. So for example, the first one is emptiness, and he, and he talks about how Jesus is mourning. And so he's, he's creating this place of emptiness as he mourns, and he wants to go to a desert place alone to make room for the, the energy of healing and of love and the love of God to flow in. And so that's one of the conditions of a miracle, according to the author. Um, this is a, an easy read. It's about 150 pages or so, and, and they're, they're short pages, but it's, um, it's interesting for that reason. It helps to understand, the number one, the fact that we can create miracles in our own life, and number two, that it, how to work with Greek into English and, and gain new meanings by doing so. Uh, and as a side note, if you know my dad for any length of time, he probably has given you one of a copy of this book. And he's 82 now. He may have given you several copies and not remembered. I know, I know he's given me more than one. So um, 12 Conditions of a Miracle. But the point is that Jesus was in mourning for his best friend. And he, the different accounts give us different details about what happens, but he goes to a desert place alone. And so he's trying to mourn, and then all of these people follow him. Jesus can't go anywhere now without being thronged by mobs of people who want to see one more miracle. And of course, people who have infirmities or deformities, they want to be healed. And Jesus, when he sees them, he doesn't think, oh gosh, can I be alone? My, I've just lost my best friend. The scriptures record that when Jesus sees the multitudes come to him in this place where he's, he's gone to be apart, he's moved with compassion towards them. And so then he begins to heal them, and, they, and he begins to teach them. And they are with him so long, and it's a remote place. He went there for that reason, that his disciples say, look, these people are going to, they're going to faint with hunger. We've been here all day, and nobody has any food. And so this is the miracle, Jesus says, all right, give them some food. And the, and the disciples say, well, you know, they, we have to send them out. If we, should we take 
and then the equivalent is maybe you know a year's wages or whatever 200 penny worth of bread or 200 denarii which was a day's wages should we should we take 200 penny worth of bread and go buy them we can't feed this multitude it's 5000 men let alone women and children we don't even we don't there's no way anyone could feed them and jesus says what do you have and so there's so many lessons buried in what happens next the disciples say we have this uh, we have these five loaves and two fishes, but that's all we have. So obviously, the, one of the things that we have to remember about the Gospels is that the writers, the authors of the Gospels, they knew the end before they began writing the story. It wasn't like a journal. We're, what we're reading is not a journal that was written in the moment, and then later on we have to find out the meaning the writers of the Gospels have already done this for us. And so what's about to happen is very deliberate, which is that Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it, looks up to heaven, and then he breaks it, and then he hands it to the disciples. Now what follows is you know, that this should, be, this should be ringing bells in your mind already, and it's obvious what it's meant to evoke, which is that Jesus does the same thing the night before he is crucified with the disciples after the Last Supper, as he institutes the ordinance of the sacrament. So Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and at that time he says, this is my body. But at this time he says, you know, give this to them. Let me take your offering. And here's, here's one of the chief lessons that I think we can gain from this is, let me take your offering. This offering that is so small, that it can't even solve 1% of the problem. In fact, it can't go anywhere. You, you can barely feed yourself. Let me take your tiny offering and let me hold it and look up to heaven and give thanks for it and bless it and then break it and hand it back to you. And then you take it. And this is, this is one of the significant parts of this account is the disciples are the ones who distribute it. Then you take it and you go do with it what you can. And why don't you see if what happens is not miraculous. So the blessing, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the people at that time took, the lesson that they took was that Jesus was the Messiah. Immediately they start saying, oh, obviously, this is the person we've been waiting for. And the, Jesus is even afraid they're going to take him and make him their king, uh, which is, you know, I would, I would disagree a little bit with the wording of that because Jesus, as, Jesus knew he was already their king. What they were going to do was to make him, was to change the nature of the kingdom. Jesus had been instituting the kingdom all along, and these people wanted to make him a Messiah or make him a king in the way that they had been considering that the Messiah would return. As, as, as they read the book of Isaiah and as they read the Davidic covenant, as we learn about in 2 Kings, they expected a king along the lines of David and Solomon, somebody who would rule forever and be in tune with God's will and basically use the power of the ancient God of Israel to conquer all of Israel's enemies. And that would start today. And they said, this is the one we've been waiting for. Let's take him right now and go storm Herod Antipas's palace and the, the power behind him, which is Rome. We can, you know, there are 5,000 of us. What can't we do? Especially if we have a man who can feed us as we go. He can miraculously provide, provide food for our armies. And, you know, we're going to, this is, these are just the people that are out here in the desert. We're going to raise an army and we're going to take Jesus and make him our king. This was the danger that Jesus faced upon performing this miracle. Now they got the exact wrong message. 
as we'll see when we talk about the bread of life. So Jesus explains what he was doing. And, and so it's important to recognize that when you read these stories, they are illuminated by their context. Something that, uh, an artifact of, let's say, of modern literature is that a writer of a, of a narrative is going to give some indication as to the mental state of any character that they're writing about. It wouldn't be good writing otherwise today. But in the Bible, that's just not the case. The only way we find out what's really going on underneath this, the surface in the minds of the people involved is to read what comes before and after. So we can guess that Jesus was in mourning for his friend and that performing this miracle was not a way of placating the mob, but of honoring the memory of John the Baptist and saying, now, so let's talk about what happened. Here is some bread and bread is what does bread symbolize to the people who are witnessing this miracle? And we keep going back to the Hebrew scriptures as we study the New Testament, because those are the scriptures of the people that were listening to Jesus, and those are the scriptures that Jesus grew up with. So in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, what does bread symbolize? What does it mean? Well, we see bread, first of all, when God ejects Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, they say, he says, by the sweat of your brow will you eat your bread all the days of your life. So the fall is, you, do, you have to work for bread. And yet here is Jesus providing bread with no work. And there are obvious throwbacks also to the bread in the wilderness. Manna was called bread, even though we don't know exactly what form it took. It was like bread. They considered it, they considered it to be miraculous bread. And the message that God was sending, this was made obvious by the fact that the tabernacle, as you, as you went from the outside of the tabernacle towards the Holy of Holies, you were going backwards. You were undoing the fall. There were all these Garden of Eden imagery uh, installed in the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies was beyond the Garden of Eden. So what you were doing was you were going from the world in which we live back to the Garden of Eden and then back into God's presence. And the manna was representative of this. No longer are you eating your bread by the sweat of your brow, but bread is being provided for you. And that's what Jesus is doing. So the, the parallel with manna is clear. Jesus is undoing the fall as he feeds these people, and yet not completely, right? He hasn't, he's returned them to the state they were in in the garden, but not to God's presence. And he explains what the remaining step would involve in the bread of life discourse. So first of all, he, what he's trying to do for these people is take them that much closer to God and to and, and in doing so, give honor to John the Baptist, his best friend's memory. And instead, what people take from that is, here's a military ruler. And we just saw in the example of Herod, we just saw what happens with rulers. You know, I, I, I actually took the I was a little intrigued by the word birthday. It seemed out of place in the New Testament. So I thought, is the word birthday come up much in the scriptures? And we have two examples of birthdays in the scriptures. And one is Herod's birthday, where he, where he decapitates John the Baptist. And the other is Pharaoh's birthday. And Joseph of Egypt had given the, the interpretation of the dream where one of the, the butler would have his... Uh, position restored and then the, the the baker would have his head cut off and so on pharaoh's birthday then a man is brought out of prison just like john the baptist and decapitated so the message is this is what kind of rulers 
the world is made up of. This is evoking the imagery. Again, we, we keep bringing up certain chapters from the Old Testament because they're so relevant in the New Testament. And one of those is, is Daniel chapter 7. This is where the name of the Son of Man comes from. And th- this is Daniel's vision where these beasts come out of the ocean and rule the earth, and they represent kingdoms of this world. So the kings of this world, that's, that's what kind of governments we get. And with few exceptions, we see it even today. The kind of person that rises to the top is not usually the kind of person that you personally respect and admire, unless you're caught up into their, uh, you know, their mythos that they create. The, generally, the, they're, they're beasts, and that's what Herod was, and that's what the multitude wanted to make of Jesus. They wanted to change his kingdom. And Jesus knew, if you take my upside-down kingdom and you make it resemble the kingdoms of this world, then you will be turning me into a beast. And so then what, what follows next, once you understand that, then you understand the reasoning behind what follows next, is Jesus sends his, what he wants to do is get away from these people who are trying to do this to him and diffuse this idea among them, in my opinion, right? This is my reading of this passage. So what he does next, and we have this account in Matthew, Mark, and John, is he sends his disciples on a boat alone. And the place where they were is Bethsaida, which is, you can, there's a map in your gospel library app, but it's the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And he sends them to a, town, a little town called Genesaret, which doesn't exist today, but it's halfway in between Capernaum and Magdala. About five miles away, it's, it's just a little sliver across the very top. It's right across the north, maybe a five-mile water trip. But you could almost parallel that on the beach. So you could walk alongside, especially if, like the, like the disciples, they're rowing against the wind. You could walk on the beach and beat them there. So it's not like they're going across the middle of the lake and the crowd has to go all the way around. And so he sends the disciples alone so that uh, the multitude will think that Jesus remained behind. And he does remain behind. He remains behind and he does finally get some time to himself. He goes to a mountain place to pray. And he, ha- he has a communion with God. And we don't know what he experienced, but we can guess that he was mourning personally for John the Baptist. This is how Jesus... Uh, honored his friend and mourned his friend. He was sad. We know that when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he wept. And what did he do with the parents, uh, with Jairus and his wife, when their daughter was killed? He wept. Jesus cried with the people who had experienced loss, even when that loss was about to be mitigated, because he was feeling their pain at the same time they were feeling it. And how much greater that pain would have been for himself, for his friend. So then we have this wonderful story of Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee. So the wind is, the, the, it's a powerful wind in their face. So they can't put up their sail and get where they're going. The disciples can't. They're in a boat. And um, the, the modern day uh, city of, or town of, of Gennesaret is called Genosar. It's an archaeological site. And there is a place there where they've uncovered a first century fishing boat. And they think that this probably is what the, the boats at the time of Jesus, maybe Peter's and Andrew's boat, looked like. We don't know. But it's, it's about 25 feet long or so. And, you know, it would have fit 12 people, but not too many more. And that would have laid in the boat. And they would have, been, they would have had a tough time rowing. It wasn't a, a Roman galley made for, uh, you know, a bunch of people rowing together. So they would have been struggling all night 
several hours against the wind, and it was in the middle of the night that Jesus is walking across the water. And the, the accounts give different, they emphasize different details. But in Matthew's account, we have Jesus uh, walking across the water, and then the, the disciples have different reactions to this. And Peter says, Lord, you know, that looks like Jesus. You know, some of them see this, and, and Peter's reaction is, Lord, if that is you, then, then tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, okay, do it. And then Peter walks out in the water and, you know, he, he sinks in the water because he looks around at the waves and Jesus has to rescue him. On my mission, there was a, uh, we, we were given materials when we arrived that would help us in our teaching. And one of those was called the force of Peter, the strength of Peter, which was the Holy Ghost. And it was, we, you know, it was suggested that we use this if somebody was close to the commitment of baptism and, and then was vacillating on that decision, we would talk about the strength of Peter, that if you get the Holy Ghost, then you will have the strength of Peter, which was, look at what Peter did. He walked on the water, but then he was weak and fell in. He loved Jesus, but then he denied him three times. And yet, after he got the Holy Ghost, he was, you know, he was witness for Jesus all over Europe and the Middle East. That it never sat well with me, and I couldn't quite understand why. Well, so I never really used that resource while I was on my mission. And then uh, I had the opportunity to study in Israel for several months, and a few years after that. And uh, I understood when we were on the bus on the way to live in Galilee region for three weeks, it finally hit me why that had never sat well with me. And it was because uh, that Peter, alone of all the disciples, was the only one who had the courage to actually get up and get out of the boat. It didn't matter to me that Peter had a moment of doubt when surrounded by wa- wind and waves. He was the only one who acted on his desire to be close to the Savior. And the rest of the disciples they didn't have the experience of sinking in the water, but they also didn't have the experience of walking on the water the way Peter did. To me, that seems pretty remarkable. In all the scriptures, we only have an account of two people walking on water, and only one of them is not Jesus. To me, that's very remarkable. So I have always admired Peter for the willingness to walk on water in spite of the fact that it was water. He was in a perfectly good boat. To me, the... The reason that he did it was because, and I had this experience recently. Um, I had a I had a friend who's uh, decided not to be Christian anymore, and I thought, how could you give up the uh, the worship of Jesus? Now this person still believes in God, but the to me I went I, and and that night I was going to bed and I realized I hadn't read my scriptures and I. I thought, man, I just really want to, the study of the New Testament has given me the opportunity of every day feeling like I'm walking with the Savior. And I'm, it wasn't that I, I thought, in the past I've done this a lot. Man, I haven't read my scriptures today. I'm not doing what I should do. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not what I, doing what I told myself I would do. But that day I had the experience, I really miss Jesus. I really miss being with my Savior. And I, and I recognized that the beginnings of 
a relation, what they call a relationship with God. I'm experiencing the beginnings of a relationship with Jesus where I miss him. And this is what Peter was feeling. He thought, that's Jesus over there, and it's only been a few hours that we've been apart, but I'm one of his disciples. I've been with him every day. And wherever the Savior is, that's where I have to be. And so if I have to perform a miracle to get there, then so be it. I'm going to get out of whatever feels comfortable and safe to me and go through whatever dangers and worries that I need to go through to be where he is. To me, that's the lesson of this passage, far more than um, the fact that Peter needed more strength later on. So they arrive. They arrive in Gennesaret or in Capernaum, depending, uh, you know, it would have been only a short distance from one to the other. The next day they might have gone to Capernaum because that's where John reports Jesus teaching this bread of life discourse. But in any case, when they land, people, the word goes out that Jesus is here and everyone starts bringing their, their sick and afflicted to Jesus and he heals them. So a couple other accounts from, from Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15 this is where Jesus reproves the Pharisees for teaching false doctrine. And so the, the question comes up, how come your disciples, how come they eat with unwashed hands? And this, for me, this was a, a passage that I benefited from reading in another translation. So whenever that happens, I kind of like to bring it up. It just clarifies the meaning and clarifies the events and what they're saying to each other. And I, and I usually, when I do this, I usually read it in three or four or five different translation so that I'm sure that I'm not just taking one person's view for it. And you can do all of that on BibleHub.com. Um, and so the, the idea behind this whole passage, um, once again, this is a place where Jesus explicitly quotes Isaiah. He says, I'm quoting Isaiah, and then he says, just like Isaiah said, you're, giving, you're paying lip service to the God of Israel, but your hearts are far from him. You're saying, oh, you know, it's important to wash your hands, but look at, look at the works that you do. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say you have to wash your hands before you eat. Now, obviously, uh, it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, it's a bad thing to wash your hands before you eat. What he's saying is, you're pretending like things are in the scriptures when they're not. This is one of the reasons why Jesus uh, does things on the Sabbath. He interacts with the Sabbath in a way that offends Jewish leaders. And um, in this particular case, he says, here's an example. You're told to honor your father and your mother, but then whenever you're called upon by the scriptures to give them something, to a part of them of your substance, then you've come up with this idea that all you have to do is call it a gift, meaning a gift to God. Uh, sorry, mom and dad, this is, a, this is something that I've consecrated to God, therefore I can't share it with you. And therefore, you find a way by, by saying you're worshiping God, you find a way to get around the very important commandments of God. And you're talking to me about washing my hands? Look at what you're doing. You're, it, it, it's, a, it's a capital offense in the law of Moses to fail to honor your father and your mother. And what you're doing is talking about washing my hands before I eat. Can't you see the hypocrisy there? This is what Jesus is pointing out to them. And, uh, you know, th this is the kind of thing that they really hated. And you can see that Jesus is, nothing made Jesus as upset as hypocrisy about religious topics. 
when someone tried to get someone else to do something that not only wasn't that important, but was ignoring the whole... I mean, this. Uh, there's no reason for me to explain it more. This is a perfect illustration of the kind of thing that made Jesus ups- upset, and you can see exactly why. Uh, after this story, then Jesus goes into the coasts or the, the environs of Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician towns. And so it's interesting because what Jesus has said when he sent the 12 disciples on their mission, their first mission, he said, don't go into any towns that don't have Israelites. Stay, you know, stay localized with our people. And there are some, of, and then he gives them this interesting uh, admonition. He says, there are some who are last who will be first, and there are some who are first who will be last. And so Jesus makes it plain that the first are the house of Israel, and the last are the Gentiles, everyone outside of that. So here he is, and he doesn't say, tell all the Jews that I'm here, have them come to me. Um, it's obvious that Jesus meant his, from the, it's obvious from these scriptural accounts in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7, that Jesus intended this journey to be secret. So why would he go? The only event we have reported from this trip is that he heals the daughter of a Gentile woman. And they have this interesting exchange. She says to him, my daughter has a devil. Please, will you help me, please? And he says, I'm, I'm only called to the house of Israel. Look, I'm, you know, I'm just, the, these are my people. This is my calling. And he says, he gives uh, a reply that some people take to be unkind, which is it's not it's not fit to take the children. The house of Israel are God's children. It's not to fit to take the children's food and give it to the to the animals of the house to the dogs. And and if you read this on a surface reading, it sounds like Jesus is calling this woman a dog. Well, this is language reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, "Cast not your pearls before swine, or don't give that which is holy." To the dogs, so he's saying what what that and the metaphor, the meaning of that metaphor was obvious at the time, which is, don't take sacred things and share them with people who won't value them. In that context, it's obvious what Jesus means here. He's he's not telling this woman she's a dog. What he's doing is he's asking this woman, "Are you someone who doesn't value what's important?" The woman's response tells Jesus everything he needs to know. She says. And yet, even the dogs, when food falls off the table, you know, they, they get to eat a little bit. They're, even dogs are fed in the master's house. And so, in other words, she doesn't take offense. This is in great contrast to what's, about what's coming up. She doesn't take offense to something Jesus says that could be taken in a way that would give offense. Instead, she humbles herself before Jesus and asks him for his help. And he says, okay, that's all I need to hear. Your response told me what I needed to know. Go thy way, your daughter's whole. And then she goes home and finds her daughter healed, just like she asked for. So here's another amazing miracle of Jesus. But it's also a lesson in the miracle, which is Jesus was giving her a test. And it was a test that could offend. And when she responded with humility and love, then Jesus gave her the miracle that she had been seeking. All right, now let's get to uh, the, the account that's only in John. Now, uh, I want to refresh your memory if you're a new listener. When we first talked about the, the Gospel of John, John has a very specific structure. Uh, the, the Gospel of John is, I've, I've likened it before to 
John's Sistine Chapel ceiling. John is like the Michelangelo of scripture writers. And this gospel, according to John, is an absolute work of art. So the first chapter was John's prologue where he exposes a number of themes that he's going to hit again and again. And I don't have time to go back and go through all of them. I wish I did right now. But go back and listen to that lesson if you like. And then and then John has four accounts of Jesus interacting with cultural Jewish cultural institutions, beginning with turning water into wine, a Jewish wedding, etc. And then uh, the final one is a, um, a sacred well. And that's where Jesus says, I'm the water of life to this woman in Samaria. So he has, um, he has before gone to somebody who is outside of the house of Israel. And he has proclaimed the good news of the kingdom to her as well. And she, not only that, but she went into her town and she spread the word about Jesus. And they stayed there for days sharing this good news with the entire town full of Samaritans, people who the Israelites considered to be other. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm called to the house of Israel. On the other hand, when he sends the disciples out, Jesus is saying, the last shall be first. So those people, and and this is reconciled by the idea in John chapter 1, that Jesus, or the word, to those who believed he gave the power to become the sons of God. In other words, there are two seeds. There's the seed of Israel, and there's the seed of God. They weren't born according to the flesh, as John says in chapter 1, but they were born according to the will of God and of the Spirit. So Jesus is creating a new birth. He's creating a new people, a new entire race, and it's not a race according to ethnicity. It's a race of people who are born of God. This is a theme that recurs throughout John. So we have two themes that we're pulling in, this theme of the water, and then also the theme of water becoming wine. And uh, we'll talk about how those become significant in just a second. So that's John chapter 5, and then John spends the rest of chapter 5 with this extended discourse by Jesus on him witnessing. Who are the witnesses of the Father? Uh, Or who are the witnesses of Jesus? Well, Jesus says, my Father is a witness of me. And Once again, now, uh, after the four interactions of Jesus with these cultural institutions, then Jesus interacts, and we see one of them here. Then Jesus interacts with four four festivals. Actually, we see two of them. So one one of the festivals is the Sabbath, and Jesus heals this man at the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. Or, I'm sorry, Bethesda. He heals the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, and number one, the Jews are upset with this man, for carrying his bed as Jesus heals him and he can carry his bed home on the Sabbath. And two, then they find out who did it and they're upset with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And they're trying to put Jesus in a place where they can get enough ammunition against him to put him to death. They hate him that much because he's calling out. And again, he does the same thing he did with the washing of the hands. He does that with the Sabbath here. He says, this isn't part of the commandment. You are such hypocrites. How many of you would let your animals die because you don't want to do work enough to pull them out of a ditch on the Sabbath? No, you're going to pull them out. So you actually don't believe. Hypocrisy, by the way, is not failing to live up to your own standards. It's, it's failing to apply the standards to yourself that you apply to others. So it's not saying, oh gosh, you know, and, and, and a lot of people feel like if I tell my children uh, kids, for example, and this is this is becoming more and more common as more and more people have smoked marijuana, let's say. 
I have a hard time telling my children not to smoke drugs when, when I experimented with them when I was a teenager. Well, guess what? You're not being a hypocrite when you do that because you actually believe that it's wrong. You're just presenting them a standard that you yourself have fallen short of, perhaps. There's no, I don't see any real need to share that with them uh, unless, unless it comes up. I mean, don't lie to your children, but there's no need to tell them that you struggled with it necessarily. That might be a stumbling block for them. But you're not being a hypocrite because you actually embrace the standard. The fact that you don't live up to it doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you human. And that same principle illuminates everything that parents do. What parent is perfect? None. So you're not a hypocrite when you do that kind of thing or when you preach that kind of thing. What, what person was ever elevated to a position of leadership in the church and hasn't been a sinner? None. So everybody has to teach things that they've fallen short on, especially, you know, you've, you've heard of pride and of chastity and of uh, generosity, charity from leaders of the priesthood. Which of them ever got that perfect? None of them. But yet they feel like they're authorized to teach about it. They're not being hypocrites. Hypocrisy is when you actually don't believe that that thing you're preaching applies to you. So these, these Jews were saying, hey, wash your hands. These, and, and when I say the Jews, um, the gospel writers actually use it in the sense of the leaders of the Jews. You know, the Jews came to Jesus and said this, meaning uh, the Jewish authorities. So the Jews said, wash your hands. In other words, every little detail of the law has to be important to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you're such hypocrites. Because every detail of the law is not important to you. What you want to do is use the law to excuse yourself. And that's what makes you hypocrites. So that's important to note. When you're trying to do what's right, you're not being a hypocrite. And uh, so that's an amazing tale of Jesus uh, healing. This is, I have a picture of this. Carl Block is one of my favorite um, artists, painters, de- depictors of the life of Jesus. And I have a reproduction of the healing at the Pool of Bethesda in my home. Um, it's one of my favorite accounts. And the... So Jesus gives this account, the Father is the witness of Jesus. One of the interesting things that he says here is that um, the Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. This again is pulling in the idea of Daniel chapter 7, because what happens with the person who's called the Son of Man, and the Son of Man, um, incidentally, is just a way of saying a person who looks like a mortal man. The word is used a few times in the, in the Old Testament to indicate somebody who appears to just be a normal person. A son of Adam is another way of translating it. So the the son of man is given judgment and he has given an everlasting dominion in Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus is evoking that in John chapter 5 when he says, the father has handed all judgment into the hands of the son. There are just a few chapters in the Old Testament that just resonate over and over again throughout the New Testament. And Daniel 7 is one of them. Um, we'll talk about two more in just a moment. So um, that's John chapter 5. And then John chapter 6, Jesus interacts with another Jewish festival. So, And we'll talk about the other two Jewish festivals in a later lesson. But this one is the Passover. And this is where we learn that when, John, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it was near the Passover. And I don't know that this is relevant, but the idea, the I got the idea that maybe this was unleavened bread that Jesus was uh, breaking and distributing and multiplying. So again, 
the idea of bread in the Old Testament, it occurs at the fall, but it also occurs in the Passover, when the Israelites are charged to eat standing up, eat in a hurry. You don't have time to let your bread rise. And so you have to, as a, as a commemoration of this, as a commemoration of how quickly you're being called upon to leave Egypt, you have to eat standing up with your shoes on your feet, and you can't put yeast in your bread. And so this was the festival that they were celebrating when Jesus multiplied the bread, and he's, he's handing out this bread to them. And so the idea was, you're like ancient Israel. This is the bread of the manna that they were given in the wilderness, and the bread is sustaining your earthly life while you're depending on God. You have gone away. You have separated yourself from the kingdoms of this world right? We've, we've, we've left the domain of Pharaoh. And uh, you may have heard the saying that it took just a few days, it took one week for the Lord to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for him to get Egypt out of the Israelites. So this is the idea that they're, they're in the wilderness together. Jesus has led uh, a crowd, a multitude of believers away from the areas that are controlled by these foreign invaders, the the Romans, and they're off on their own. And then Jesus provides them bread, exactly as Yahweh did to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then we have the idea that this bread is also reminiscent of the sacrament that Jesus would institute later on. So in this way, Jesus ties together. And to me, I, I spent a long time thinking about what was the tie, and that's when I came up with the idea that the, the manna was God's way of partially redeeming them from the fall. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the multiplication of the bread. He's telling them, you don't have to, the, one of the aspects and one of the consequences of the fall is that you have to work for your bread. And here's bread without work. And so I'm partially redeeming you from the fall, and I'm showing you the way. I'm, I'm looking forward to something that will come, the sacrament that is instituted, and what the sacrament represents, which totally redeems you from the fall. So you're going part of the way into the temple, but not all of the way. That comes later. And so Jesus then arrives the next day. You know, that, that was, we were, what we were just doing is going back over John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. But then Jesus the next day arrives in Capernaum and he gives this wonderful discourse. So then this multitude or whoever cared to from the multitude have walked back home or walked back to find Jesus. And here he is in Capernaum teaching and they say, hey, how'd you get here? You know, we only saw one boat leave and you weren't on it. And Jesus says, you know, rather than talking about um, the miracle that he performed in the night, Jesus says to them, you're following me not because you've seen miracles and because you really want uh, these miracles in your life, you want the gospel, but because you had this bread and, and you were filled. You had earthly bread. So then, then he begins to explicitly tie the manna to the bread that he gave them. And he says, Moses, you say Moses gave you bread in the wilderness, but I'm telling you, it was my father that gave you that bread. It was God that gave you the bread in the wilderness. And God and by you, he means you, the house of Israel, not you, the people that are here. He's, he's telling them, you're just the same as the people in ancient Israel. You've been given this miracle. You've been partially redeemed from the fall. And you're ascribing it to earthly powers. And they begin to do something very similar. It's so interesting. They begin to do something very similar to what the Israelites did. They begin to murmur when Jesus talks about, okay, look, I am the bread of life. 
First, and first Jesus says something very uh, remarkable that'll come in later on. He says, whoever believes in me will live forever. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus gives this bread of life discourse, which is, which is so packed with meaning. And we have to remember that uh, in the book of John, we're fresh off the account of John saying, I am the living water to the woman at the well. So Jesus is saying both in, in, a, in just a short span of time uh, or short span of um, manuscript time, Jesus is saying, I'm the water of life and now I'm the living bread or I'm the living water and I'm the bread of life. And um, he's saying, whoever eats this bread will never die. And later on, he says, uh, he adds his blood to it. So if, if you eat my flesh, he says, you know, you have to eat the bread of life, which is me. And they're like, okay, give us this bread, you know, this bread that uh, will make us live forever. Lord, give it to us. How can we do the works of God? How can we do what God wants us to do? And Jesus does something that is so interesting. And, and, and we have a little echo of it in the chapter before when he talks to this Phoenician woman. He gives them a lesson that cannot help but offend them. And John understands it because John has been with Jesus. Now, by the time he writes down this story, he's been with Jesus through the end of Jesus's ministry. He lives with the he lives with Jesus during the time of the institution of the sacrament. And then there have been decades where John has been observing the sacrament every week. And so John's account of this bread of life discourse is informed by all of that experience. And yet, it's clear as we read it that none of these people would have, I mean, it's impossible. It would have been impossible, and that includes John the Beloved, the writer of this gospel. It would have been impossible for anyone to know what Jesus meant. They did not know what the sacrament was. The, the closest they could get is a, a scripture that we've referred to a few times, and we're going to do it again. This is one of these chapters in the Old Testament that just echoes through the New and that is Jeremiah chapter 31. So verses 31 through 34 talk about, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. I'm going to write the, I'm going to write the commandments. I'm going to write my Torah on their hearts. And then they're going to do what I've always wanted them to do, which would be obedient, because I'm going to forgive their sins. And if you don't see echoes of the sacrament in that, you're not paying attention to the sacrament prayer. So write, I'm going to write, my Torah on their hearts. I'm going to write my law on their hearts so that they'll always remember me. And then they will have my forgiveness to be with them. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. And then the other one that echoes throughout this is uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 27 and then 37. So Ezekiel is saying, I'm again, I'm going to cause them to walk in my statutes. In other words, God, God is going to do such a work that anybody who wants to will be now be finally able to be obedient the way Israel, ancient Israel, never was. And then in, in chapter 37, Ezekiel shows uh, these dry bones. And, and what do we know about dry bones coming to life? He's, he shows this entire valley full of dry bones, and then suddenly they're stood up by themselves, and then muscles and bone and sinew and tissues, and then finally skin come upon them, and then, the, and then this whirlwind surrounds them, and the breath of life is given to them. And the point is, you look at dry bones, and the one thing you know about dry bones is that it is absolutely impossible for them to ever come to life again. And then the second thing you learn about dry bones is that God makes them come to life again. 
So that is what Jesus is showing here. Even Those who believe in me and those who eat the bread of life will never die. And Jesus gives a little key. He gives a, just like in his parables, you know, there's an under, a key to understanding. At the very beginning of this bread of life discourse, he says, whoever believes in me will, have, will live forever, will have eternal life. And then, um, then he gives the bread of life discourse and says, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And at one point he even says, my flesh is true food, is food indeed. My blood is true drink. And uh, as I was reading that in a different translation, it kind of hit me. He's actually speaking metaphorically, but he's saying that he's not. It's kind of like somebody nowadays misusing the word literally. It's like Jesus is saying, my flesh is literally food and my blood is literally drink. And one of the disciples saying, Jesus, I think you mean you're, I think you mean figuratively. Don't use literally for emphasis, but obviously Jesus didn't use the word literally, but he's saying, he's saying almost the same thing. He's saying that my, the, the flesh of my body is food in a sense that is more real than the bread that you ate yesterday. And that is absolutely true. But he is obviously speaking in a metaphorical sense. And if we look back to what he said at the beginning, we get the point. When you believe in me, you are eating my flesh and drinking my blood. That is how you eat the bread of life, is believe in me and follow me. And all you have to do is believe. Everything else will follow. You have to believe that I can forgive your sins. I can do it. I've shown that I can do it. Somebody that comes to me and says, Lord, can you heal me? And then I say to them, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone says, oh, who's this guy who can forgive sins? And then he says, oh, what's harder? To say I can forgive sins? To say to somebody, your sins are forgiven? Or to actually heal them? Well, so that you'll know I can do it. Rise up, take up your bed, and walk home. And the, and the kid, and, and I'm referring to a story that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. And the, and the kid in the, in, of sick of the palsy picks up, rises up, picks up his bed, and walks home. And then everyone is like, okay, we are forced now to believe. They were all astonished. They were forced to believe that Jesus can forgive sins. And that's what Jesus is saying in this bread of life discourse. He's saying over and over again, my flesh is meat indeed. You have to eat of my flesh if you want to be saved, if you want to live forever. And he uses the the bread metaphor to explain it. He is prophesying about the institution of the sacrament and the way in which people profess their belief and redeclare their belief and renew their belief as a testimony of Uh, by eating bread and drinking water. And at this time, they would have eaten bread and and drunk wine every week. So Jesus has already said, we already know that Jesus is bread, and we already know that Jesus is liquid. He is the living water. And what have we seen in the the story of, in John chapter 2, the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And the early Christians would have had all of these metaphors and all this imagery going through their heads every time they took the sacrament. We're drinking this wine. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus was the living water. Jesus, we're eating this bread. Jesus took bread and, and multiplied it, and uh, Jesus gave bread to people without them having to work for it, and Jesus looked up to heaven, and he broke the bread, and then he blessed it, and there was more of it, and then he went out and he died. 
right? So these, this is all of the imagery that the sacrament brings to people, and John is bringing all of this information into his account of the Bread of Life discourse. I can't spend enough time, there just isn't enough time for us to do this, so I recommend you read this Bread of Life discourse, John chapter 6, the later part of John chapter 6, three or four different times in different translations. And the reason for that is you don't want the fact that you've read it a dozen times or however many times you've read it in your life, you don't want the familiarity of the words to get in the way of understanding what's being spoken here. And you, the Reading the scriptures should constantly surprise you. you want, that's the point of reading the scriptures is you want something to stick out at you. And that this will happen as you read it you know, it's hard to do that if you're reading the same words repeatedly. And so I would recommend you go onto BibleHub.com and you just click right across the top. There are probably 15 or 20 different translations you can choose to read this in. And just try reading this uh, account of Jesus teaching about how he's the bread of life. Try reading it two or three different times in different words, rendered by different people from the Greek. So Jesus says, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. And everyone is offended. This is the point from, that carries over from John chapter 5. Everyone's offended by what Jesus says. In fact, what they say, and so they're murmuring about this, right? Just like the Israelites. They're murmuring about the bread that they're, that they're being called upon to eat. They're be, they've been partially redeemed from the fall. And all that they have to do is humble themselves and accept the offering. And they will be totally redeemed from the fall and led into God's presence. And... They instead, what they do is they murmur. And, the, and when Jesus finishes his discourse, then what they, the way it's rendered in the King James Version is, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And from that point, there are a lot of people who don't walk anymore with Jesus. Meaning, uh, uh, you know, Jesus has just said something that offends me. I'm done. Uh, you know, that was great that he multiplied bread in the wilderness and all. I mean, that was, I, I'm glad I got a meal that day. But I don't need to keep following this guy. I'm, you know, he he was talking about eating his flesh. I'm out of here. And now, once again, from Peter, we get a wonderful lesson. So Jesus sees, okay, I've lost. I can't go anywhere. Up until now, I've been uh, to the point where I can't go anywhere without having a crowd everywhere. And people who don't genuinely believe with me are practically underfoot everywhere I go. And what Jesus has just done is separate the people who are willing to be offended and still believe him from the people who are not. And then he goes to Peter and he says, are, are you also going to leave me? And here is another wonderful, wonderful, amazing lesson. Peter says, Lord, where would we go? Now I want you to think about that because I have had the experience in my life of seeing many people uh, leave not only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but leave the worship of Jesus. And I, I pose this question to you. If you're struggling with, with this kind of idea, I pose this question to you. Where will you go? If you leave the worship of Jesus, where will you go? Jesus is, and I, and I've, I had a friend on his blog a few months ago put this in economic terms. Um, he said, Jesus has a monopoly on salvation, and it just so happens that I'm in the market for salvation. And so there may be things that I don't, and this particular friend uh, is gay, 
and he is had, he's had a tough time thinking, man, I have to I have to follow somebody who says that uh, for me to live the way that I feel like I should live is not something that I can do. And so he spent a time where he wasn't um, active in the church and wasn't believing in Jesus. And then he realized, where will I go? Jesus is the author of salvation, and he has a monopoly on it. And I'm, it just so happens I'm in the market for that. And it's something that I'm interested in acquiring. Uh, I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. But the point is, if you leave the worship of Jesus, you're, you're, from my limit, admittedly limited perspective of witnessing this, you're not going to find something better. You're not going to find um, a more blessed worship than the, than the worship of Jesus. Jesus makes you a better person than you will be anywhere else, worshiping anything else. Now, that isn't to say that there are people who, that there are not people who leave the church who are terrible Christians and then they go find another worship, uh, another worship tradition and they become better Christians. Of course, that's true. And if that's the case, then that was, that was the right thing for them to do. But the additional perspective I would add to that is, uh, first of all, the fact that there are terrible people who believe in Jesus is no statement against Jesus. The question isn't what kind of people believe in Jesus. The question is what kind of people would each of us be if we didn't believe in Jesus versus who we are if we do. Secondly, if you leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? Where will you go to get doctrines like the, the lesson of Alma chapter 32 and the, the seed of faith? Where will you go to read a verse of Scripture like Ether chapter 12, 27, where God says, I give unto men weakness that they can be humble and that they'll come unto me, and if they do, then I'll turn it into strength. Where will you go to read that God will make it possible for you to obey any commandment so that you you should go and do the things that God has commanded? Where will you go to have somebody ask you if you have received the image of God in your countenance? Where will you go to have somebody tell you that you need to pray with all the energy of your heart to have charity so that when God arrives, you, you'll recognize him because you're like him. In other words, it's not just Jesus that is precious to believe in, but Jesus as revealed by the prophet Joseph Smith and by modern revelation. And if, uh, and so that's the question that Peter asked, Lord, this is, you know, it was a, sure it was a hard saying that you've just given us, but if we were to leave you, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's what, you know, the fact that we don't understand what was just said, that's, that's our cross to bear, so to speak. And it's one we're happy to pick up and carry. So that's the wonderful and amazing and profound lesson of the, the bread of life discourse. Jesus has just said, if, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. And that, that brings up again the theme from John 1 that Jesus is creating two seeds. And those who believe, then the, the word will give them power to be born again, to be born unto God as children of God, to become the sons of God or the children of God.
Um, so I want to leave you with this. And this is a poem that I wrote when I was uh, living in Israel. I, I mentioned that I, that I started having this idea on the bus ride up to live in Galilee. And I started writing a poem about Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee. And I, I worked on it for, for about three weeks, and I actually finished it on the day when we had a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. And I finished this, this poem while on a boat on the Sea of Galilee uh, more than 20 years ago. Jesus came to Galilee, sent his disciples in their boat to cross the water privately. For many hours they rowed and fought while mighty winds blew in their face and waves against the planking smote. The Lord walked to them in the night, his feet borne up upon the wave. And Peter knew the Son of God for whom the winds and tides behave, and leaving wood to step on sea, his hand into the Savior's gave. Jesus also visits me when at the oars my back is bent, and while I strain at wind and rain he comes. The Lord of element out of the darkness calls to me to go where his disciples went. My ship is tossed on storms of life. The burdens of neglect and sin have weighed me down and slowed my way. But though the water pull me in, I'll brave the gale and leave my craft to see the Lord and walk with him. So twice in this lesson, we've learned profound lessons from the man who would become the prophet, Peter. We've learned that if we leave Jesus, where will we go? And we've learned that being away from Jesus causes us, or can cause us, the kind of longing that when we see him, we're not deterred by any potential trouble or inconvenience or even danger that might lie between us and following the Savior. And we learn that if we call out to him, he will tell us, come, come unto me, even if it's, even if it's across the water, even if it's doing something, even if I have to hand you bread and you think it's not going to feed a multitude, I will multiply your efforts. I will raise up your feet on ground that was previously thought to be insubstantial, and you will find that you're born up. And if it so be that you sink, then I will be there to give you my hand and pull you from the water and lead you once again to safety and calm the storm. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.